Hi, my name's Neil, and we've come to a high point of our time together as we open up the Word of God. The first passage comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, and it can be found on page 7 of your zines. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The second passage for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, good evening, and, and thank you for having me here with you this evening. Uh, it's such a, a privilege to come down and uh, preach to you in Craig's place, although I really, uh, I'm sure Craig's really appreciative of having this week off, especially before he launches into such a, a compelling series, uh, which you guys have got coming up next. So I've been given a, a one-off sermon, kind of to fill the gaps, and I was given the title of Giving, uh, and that second passage in your reading. Uh, so it'd be great to have that sort of double page open, uh, pages seven and eight of your zines. Uh, but let me pray just to sort of um, frame this up for us. Father, your word has a way of tapping into our inner life and exposing the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, really no matter the masks uh, that we wear. Now you do this to heal us uh, so that we can become the people that you intend for us to be in order that we might love you best and serve each other as the family of God. And so we pray that some of this would happen uh, this evening uh, amongst us uh, in response to your word that we've just read uh, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we, we pray these things. Amen. As I'm sure you just felt when uh, we read those two passages, no one ever spoke like Jesus. And these two passages, well, he's on fire. Uh, so much so that when I walked out of here this morning having preached, uh, you know, some, what, 3,000 words or whatever, I reflected that the 200-odd words that Jesus has said right here, uh, well, perhaps it would have been better if we just, the church had gone silent and we just read those again and again and again. So my biggest concern now as I launch into this sermon is not to get in the way of Jesus' genius um, in these two passages. Look, here we go. So there we have two, two Bible readings, and that first one is what's known as a parable of Jesus, which is kind of like, kind of like a fable with a religious punchline. 
and the other one, the second one from Matthew 6, well, that's our sermon passage. And it's, I guess, a a small section uh, from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And look, at each of these two passages, uh, Jesus paints pictures with his words. And I don't know how you received them, uh, but those passages, each of those pictures, well, they kind of made me wince. You see, in the one, he holds um, up before our eyes a religious leader uh, giving money uh, to a metaphorical fanfare of trumpets. Look at me. Now, that's a a cartoon, I'm sure. We get the point, don't we? And then the other one, well, Jesus transports us in a couple of sentences to the heart of the temple in Jerusalem to overhear another religious leader's prayer. And in those days, you used to read and pray aloud. And so it's likely that this man's words carried far enough for all of those around to hear him. This was his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I don't know about you, but that makes me squirm. I mean, what's this guy doing? What's he saying? How can he speak like that? Here he's in God's house amongst God's people, and he's so vain, so self-absorbed. And of course, look, this is a caricature, but Jesus' picture doesn't land far from the mark. What's the Pharisee doing? Well, he's doing what we all do. He's boasting. I do it. You do it. In fact, we all do it to varying degrees. Of course, some of us are more flagrant at it than others, while perhaps the rest of us are kind of much more skilled and subtle in concealing our boasting. You know, just like a seemingly incidental line that we slip into conversation about how late you left the office last night or how well your child's doing at school. Off topic, sure, just a a casual line that you like to work into conversation, no matter really what that conversation's about. Returning to the same thing over and over again. That project you're taking the lead in at work. Or that you're heading to Italy again later this year. Your volunteering. Your new relationship. Your part-time master's degree or the fact that you fast twice a week and give a tenth of all you get. Now, these are all good things, right? But why are you returning to them so often? Why are you always bringing them up? I think the term is is boasting. Some people are flagrant at it, um, some conceal their boasts, and well, then there's others who just seem simply oblivious to them. In fact, I remember hearing about a Facebook post by a fourth-year more college student who just received his final exam results. The post read, So humbled to have come first in my year. <laughs> humbled, really? <laughs> well, boasting. 
It's ugly in that Pharisee, and it's ugly in ourselves. But we all do it. So I wonder, well, why is this so? Now, maybe this is almost flipping forward fractionally to next week, but I'm sure modern psychology will speak about low self-esteem and insecurity. And that's all I've got on modern psychology. But, but well, the Bible, um, going back thousands of years, explains boasting, something like this. In Deuteronomy 6, um, well, there we read that all of humankind was made to worship and serve God. And then in Romans 1 and 2, well, expands on this. Um, and then we read that all human beings know deep down inside, uh, we know that we were made to serve God. Uh, to honour and serve God and nothing else. Which means that, well, every part of your being uh, needs, has been created for, and has been designed to hear God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. The approval of God, the, the recognition of God, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what you need. It's, if you like, imprinted into your DNA. And, well, you have an emptiness inside of you, a hole inside of you, a deep longing for it. You need the recognition of God, the well done of God. And because we don't have that, because we've turned away from God, we're tr desperately trying to fill that hole inside of us at the expense of everyone else. And that's what's going on when we boast. You see, we crave the recognition of God, his well done, but we're looking for it in all the wrong places. And so we go out into all of our relationships, and instead of going out to serve, we go out to subtly use people. Our relationships become transactional. How can I profit from this person? How can I profit from this relationship? How, how can I bolster my fragile sense of being a good person? How can I build myself up at your expense? You're going into every relationship not to serve, but to ask yourself, well, how does this make me feel? How does this help me or not help me shore up my own sense of self-worth? So I feel that I'm an important person, so that I feel better about myself. Well, that's what's going on when that Pharisee boasts, that tax collector. And that's what's going on when, when we boast. Russian poet Ivan Turgenev, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Why do we boast? It's because we're after the wrong type of recognition, the wrong type of reward. We're seeking the applause of men instead of the applause of God. And, well, if that's what we're secretly after, then Jesus tells us in today's passage that that's all we'll get. Now, the example that Jesus uses today is that of financial giving, which is the manner in which Christians give of our money to the work of the Lord. And back in the first century, well, they had no social welfare. And so primarily, uh, that was giving money uh, to the poor. But look, briefly, by way of context, and I know it's a one-off sermon, so uh, we find ourselves today in Matthew 6, uh, which is a third of the way into Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what's the Sermon on the Mount about? Uh, well, in a word, it's about righteousness, which means right standing before God 
expressed through right living in our world. Righteousness. Or in a few words, um, the Sermon on the Mount is about living as a member of the kingdom of God within the kingdom of this world. What that looks like, how radically countercultural that is, uh, which is sort of like what we're going to learn today about the way we give. And here in Matthew 6, Jesus turns to religious righteousness, uh, right standing with God, evidenced through our religious practice. And as usual, Jesus gets immediately to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? Uh, in Matthew 6, if you read ahead, you'll find that he goes straight to the three pillars of first century Jewish practice, uh, giving to the poor, so alms giving, as they used to call it back then, uh, prayer and fasting. And blunt as ever, Jesus sets up the whole chapter with his opening statement there in verse 1, where he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Religious boasting. That's the worst kind of boasting because it's filled with such hypocrisy. And so in other words, seeking the applause of your Christian peers in place of the applause of God, uh, in your giving, in your prayer life, and in your fasting, Jesus says, don't do it. Don't practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Because, well, man may look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And hearts filled with pride, uh, who are in it for the praise of men, will receive no reward from their Father in heaven. That's, that's verse 1. And then today, specifically, Jesus turns to our financial giving. Uh, see the verse 2. Uh, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. And did you notice how Jesus begins here? He begins, so when you give, not if you give, or when you've been a Christian long enough to feel ready to give, or when your finances are in a strong enough position to spin off some extra cash. Jesus begins, when you give. And so his assumption here is that, well, all Christians will give. And look, the primary reason for this is that as children of God, we bear the family resemblance. And our Father, well, our Father is a generous God. As Christians, we've been born again into the family of God. Our new DNA, if you like, contains his spirit. We bear the family resemblance. And our Father, through his spirit, is teaching us to grow up and be like him. And our dad, well, you know, the one we look up to and want to grow up to be like, well, he's generous. For God so loved the world, he gave abundantly, sacrificially, generously. Uh, through his common grace, he continues to give to all people, uh, friends and enemies alike, food, shelter, clothing, sunshine on their face, all good things are a gift from his hand. And well, his saving grace, that's free, unmerited, and lavishly given to us. So, he is generous, and well, where to be generous? And so unsurprisingly then, when we turn to the pages of God's Word, in the Bible we find that God teaches his children at least ten things about giving, like he does, about being generous. And the final two of them come from today's passage, 
but I'm going to run you through uh, all of them, all ten, uh, just briefly to sort of uh, frame up the type of giving that Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 6, uh, but also because I've been asked to give this one-off sermon with a focus on giving. Um, but look, just to make sure uh, that you sort of get the real thrust of this, when, you, when I go through these lists, just notice how many of them sort of go more to the state of our hearts than to the pragmatics of our giving, because, well, that's what God's most interested in. So, look, how do we give like our Father? Well, firstly, uh, we give systematically and regularly. Uh, Jesus says, my Father is always working, and I too am working. And what they're doing is they're creating, they're sustaining, they're outpouring themselves. Uh, They're giving to our world through their common grace. They're holding all their good gifts to us into being by their powerful word. And so we too should be systematic and regular in our giving, always giving as they are. Uh, The language in the Old Testament is that of tithing, uh, which means regularly giving a percentage of your income to the Lord. And Paul models this for us in 1 Corinthians 16, where he says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in giving, in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And that sounds like well, a lot like direct debit, doesn't it? Or like splitting a portion of your pay into a giving account. And so, like our Father, we're to give firstly systematically and regularly. Secondly, we're to give sacrificially. Because God gave sacrificially. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. He sacrificed him for us. And so his children also give sacrificially. The Old Testament uses the language of first fruits and unblemished lambs. The idea being that we're to give of our first and best, not our last and leftovers to the Lord. And this means the first direct debit to leave your account after you've been paid. This means that if your next holiday isn't slightly more humble, if the house you live in isn't somewhat less than perfect, if saving for your next car isn't, well, frankly, if it isn't delayed, then you're probably not giving sacrificially. Thirdly, God loves a cheerful giver. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He did so willingly for the joy of the outcome. And so 2 Corinthians 9-7, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Fourth, the Bible teaches us to give proportionately. Tithing by its nature is proportional. It's a percentage of your income, which means that it's a different number for everyone in this room. You see, in God's economy, the widow who gives from her very last few dollars gives far more than the businesswoman who sells one of her properties to pay for the new extension to the church. 2 Corinthians 8.12. The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Five, how do we give like our father? Well, fifthly, we give generously, just like him. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God's generous. And Paul sort of sets the example of the Macedonian churches before us. 
He writes of them in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Six, uh, God teaches us to give worshipfully. See, Jesus gave his life for his Father's glory. And so when we give, we're to give worshipfully, with a sense of reverence and awe with God's glory ultimately in mind. See, the money we give is part of our act of worship. It's a reverent act. And seven, we're to give freely, not under compulsion. Uh, John 10, 18, there Jesus says that he willingly laid down his life for us. Uh, no one took his life from him. He freely gave it up for us. And Matthew 10, 8, uh, Jesus says, well, freely you've received, therefore, freely give just like our brother Jesus. And then, you know, I love this one. There's this beautiful picture of this type of generosity um, in the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 35, where Moses asks anyone who is willing to freely give towards it. I'm going to read some little snippets from that chapter. Verse 21, everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord. Uh, Verse 22, all who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold, jewellery of all kinds. And in verse 26, and all the women who were willing and had the skill, it goes on. And the last verse, 29. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings. If you read a chapter, the result was a lavish dwelling place for our Lord. Freely you've received, says Jesus, so freely give. Where to give freely, not under compulsion, which makes the resulting generosity all that more beautiful. Then eight, uh, the Bible teaches us to give expectantly. I love this one. Uh, in Malachi 3, God says to us to bring in the full tithe into the temple storehouse. In other words, don't hold back in your generosity. Bring your full tithe into the church. And God says, test me in this. Malachi 3.10, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be no room, to st- not, not enough room to store it. So here God's saying, look, give expectantly and just watch what I do with your gifts. Watch me bless our city through the gospel of Jesus Christ that you're giving towards. Watch me bless the homeless of our city through your good gifts that you're not holding back. Watch me bless the mission field in Spain. Watch me bless the life of this community here at 4 p.m. Watch me bless your life just in the inherent blessing of doing good in our world. And watch me perhaps even bless you financially so that you can be even more generous. You know, this isn't even to speak of the rewards in heaven, which I'm going to return to a bit later on. So, there you go, flying out of the generous character of God, there's eight ways, there are more, but there's eight ways that the Bible teaches us to give. Uh, And with so many more of them, I, I hope you've noticed much more about the state of our hearts than the actual pragmatics of our giving. Just a quick recap, and I'm only going to do this once because it's a bit... Uh, we're to give regularly, sacrificially, cheerfully, proportionately, generously, worshipfully, freely, and expectantly. Because as God's children, well, we give as he gives.
Which then only leads us two more from our passage today. And the first of these, number nine, is uh, that we're to give secretly. Uh, Did you see that in verse two? So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. And then verse four, so that your giving may be in secret. Where to give secretly. Why is this? The answer is because of the treacherous nature of our hearts. Because I, you, all of us, we, crave the recognition and affirmation of our peers in the place of God. And well, if that's what we're really after, then Jesus says that that's all we'll get. You see that back to verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then verse 2. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now that one there in verse 2 is a shocking statement. And it's shocking because it's, it's so categorical, it's so absolute. The word in Greek there um, is the word for received their reward in full. It's kind of like a technical term from the marketplace. It's like one of those red ink stamps that you stamp on an invoice when it's been paid. Uh, You know, red ink, all capital letters, paid in full. If you practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, if you intentionally let slip in conversation how much you give to the church, If your name is on a bronze plaque for having donated to a church building project, then Jesus stamps your gift paid in full. You see, your pride, your boasting, has completely undone your gift. You know, the risk of this is in fact so great that Jesus goes on to say that not only are we not to tell people about our Christian giving. (laughs) There's even a sense in which we're not even to tell ourselves. See there, verse three. But when you give to the needy, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You see, that's how far gone we are. You see, it's possible for us to take pride even in giving secretly. We preserve our anonymity, all the while quietly congratulating ourselves. You see, in our perversity, we manage to take pride in keeping it secret. And in our own hearts, we turn an act of mercy into an act of vanity. We turn giving into kind of purchasing, and thereby undo secret giving as well. So best number 10, Uh, that we give not just secretly, but also forgetfully, which I think is the sense of of verse 3. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And so when you give, maybe just one more time, you give give regularly, sacrificially, cheerfully, proportionately, generously, worshipfully, freely, expectantly, secretly. But to all of that, forgetfully. Don't keep a private record. Don't return in your heart to that generous one-off gift or how much you give on a weekly or monthly basis. Don't ever tally it up and rest pridefully in it. Because the Christian faith isn't about a score sheet. I mean, perish the thought. Can you imagine if it was about a score sheet? Where would that leave us? Give forgetfully, 
your gift kind of using itself up in the moment. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Otherwise, even secret giving runs the risk of being stamped by God, paid in full. If you do that, Jesus says, verse 4, where he finishes, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That's where Jesus ends. He says, if you give as your father gives, you'll receive his reward. You know, Matthew's not shy or or coy about using that word reward. If you look closely at the text, it's there in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4. And in fact, it, it features regularly right throughout his gospel. But many of us kind of trip up at this idea of a reward. I mean, if God's so interested in the state of our hearts when we give, then what's all this talk of doing it for reward? I mean, surely that's a bit mercenary, isn't it? Surely having a reward kind of defeats the purpose of giving in the manner that's been described. But you know, and again, again here, surprise, surprise, uh, thinking like this, well, we're encountering a, another heart issue. You see, we're just too focused on self. We're too focused on ourselves to sort of appreciate that, well, our reward could lie outside of ourselves. What's this reward that awaits those who give as God gives? Let me tell you. It's seeing the needy fed. It's seeing the widow comforted. It's seeing the orphan loved. It's that conversation that changes you forever at City Care Lunch. It's the quiet tears of thanks to God prayed by that fringe member of our church in dire straits who's had her rent paid by our Act 6 ministry. What's our reward? What's well, one more preteen boy saved from sex trafficking through the work of IJM? It's Sydney CBD workers and Spanish students on their knees for Jesus. It's the inherent goodness within the act of giving itself. And all of this, everything that I've just said, all wrapped up in the applause of God. His well done, good and faithful servant. His pleasure and his glory in our world is our very great reward. I'm going to pray about that. Dear Heavenly Father, help our deepest motivation to be your glory and not our own. Help us not to chase after the recognition and affirmation of our peers, those shallow, fleeting and empty rewards. Instead, help the deepest longing of our hearts to be your well-done, good and faithful servant as a result of doing good that lasts into all eternity. And Lord, when it comes to our financial giving, we pray that you would give us the grace we need to mirror you in the generosity that we extend to others. Help that be a mirror image of the generosity that you have shown to us in Jesus. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen.